but but that's real right now and and it's because of the stress and it's because of the trauma and it's because of the grief and like people are like well let's process this trauma and it's like we're still in it so it's gonna be hard to process so we've all just got to take a deep breath and find ways to support ourselves and one another and try to understand well what's under that resistance what's under that fear what's under that reluctance what's under that recalcitrance um why is that so hard and scary for people Rocketeers, welcome to the weekly podcast for people craving richer relationships, fulfilling community, healthier masculinity, and permission to create. I know so many of our listeners are people who are working hard in the community to make things better for people who are marginalized, but I'm guessing that even you powerhouses out there might feel at a loss sometimes. What can I do that's effective? What will actually help? What is my capacity to take on more? These are all questions I struggle with regularly, and maybe you do too. Our guest this week is a serial entrepreneur and problem solver named Laura Fitton. She's a college chum from my Cornell days. We used to spend a bunch of time together at Cornell Outdoor Education, leading backpack trips, teaching rock climbing, and developing our own communication and leadership skills. Even back then, Laura stood out with her intelligence, drive, and courage. Those characteristics showed up in the first thing she chose to do after college. She got a job cooking for an educational program on a tall ship sailing back and forth across the Atlantic. She took that job despite being prone to seasickness because she believed in the mission of the Sea Education Association. Laura eventually took her smarts and passion and started her own internet startup. Do we say started a startup? Started, well, what else do you do with a startup she, she but start upped, it? She upped a startup. Yeah. Anyway, it was called 140.com after the original character limit on then nascent Twitter. Aha. Kelly just gets it. Yeah. Uh, the penny drops. She sold 140.com to a large inbound marketing company maybe a decade ago and got to work for them and host major annual conferences featuring some pretty amazing speakers. Uh, amazing. Who writes these things? <laughs> uh, out of this world speakers? Yeah. Yeah. Laura went on to start a company to address climate change, the Enough Company, and the pandemic, the PPE Index, which we'll talk about in this podcast. The through line in all her ventures was seeing a need and deciding to do something to meet it. And she does it with her trademark intelligence and empathy. This episode started off talking about entrepreneurship, but ended up diving into the nature of evil and how to avoid it. Seriously, the nature of evil. So be prepared to get inspired, enlightened, and frankly, a little challenged. There are some very clear calls to action in this episode. All right, the tape is rolling. Check. Caffeine at optimal levels. Very nearly. The cats are secured. Check. The microphones are hot. Check that. We are Go, Go for, for Launch. launch. Welcome, everybody, to the Rocket Feather Podcast. We are in the 40s. We are a grown-up podcast now. We're somewhere in episode 44, 45. 
we've uh, uh, been through the rough times, we've been through the great times, and uh, now we know ourselves a little bit better, and we haven't started decaying yet. So this is, this is a great time to be listening to this not-quite-middle-aged, not-quite-young-and-dumb podcast. I'm Charles Matthews, and I am past my 40s, and I'm here with... Kelly Robert, also past my 40s. But nobody knows that. She looks, she looks like a spring chicken. Mm-hmm. And we're interviewing today Laura Fitton, a, a dear friend from, from my college days. But she's not as old as I am. And you don't have to say how old you are. That's not a requirement of this podcast. Hey, I like your podcast. I'm very happily in my 40s. Yeah, and you and you raise chickens, so you have you have spring chickens in the spring. Literally. Yeah. So as we said in the intro, I I met Laura when we were both working for something called Cornell Outdoor Education and and leading leading other college students into the wild and taking them rock climbing and getting them scared and getting them happy and generally having a wonderful time. But the first thing we want to ask, this is, a, this is I'm, I'm going to work to ask questions that I don't know the answer to, because we, you and I have known one another for a while, but I want to, I want to find out more. So my first, my first question is, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were 10? What did you think you were going to be? What did you want to be? Probably a vet. Doesn't every little 10-year-old girl want to be a veterinarian? Or, you know, I don't know, there were, there were some very early, I want to go rock climbing instincts. I just had nowhere to climb, but I was lucky enough to grow up in a wooded lot (laughs) and spend all my time exploring, you know, an acre of woods, which seemed like all of the woods. Uh, And there was a little tiny rock ledge back there that I was not allowed to go anywhere near. Um, And of course, you know, as an adult, I went back to it and I'm like, this isn't even climbable. This is just a little boulder, but. So typical animal lover, nature lover, no surprise we met at COE actually. Yeah. But so there was something about being outside and being and exploring and pushing pushing limits that was attractive to being 10 or to that 10 year old. Yeah, I've always had the um poor impulse control, the dubious social skills, um the ability to go deep and get really fascinated with things like how is the sand moving when I put this rock in the brook? um, that come with being who I particularly am. And that resulted in many, many hours spent alone in my yard exploring, um, which was a gift. I was so lucky. Like I did not love my town growing up. It was not the most welcoming place for my, uh, personality, but it is an amazing town. I actually have started bringing my kids back there in summer to pick blueberries because the best blueberries in the world grow on my old bus route. <laughs> and um, there are still horse farms. There is still a brook in the front yard of the house I grew up in. So extreme blessings there too. Yeah, yeah. But you were not a you were not a great fit because of your your feral wood child, wood elf, junior <laughs> junior scientist persona. Conventional suburban Connecticut is a tough place to go through every single year of your schooling. Like I would always envy the kids whose families moved. Like, oh, mm. if only I could go to another town and start again with kids who weren't still picking on me for something that happened in kindergarten. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to, it's nice to be able to escape history every now and then. Sure. I seriously remember an incident of, you know, attempted bullying, because by senior year of high school you don't really care um where someone was you know singing a thing they used to sing at me in sixth grade and i'm like wait what what do you think Seriously? is gonna happen now 
So you ended up, we're just going to skip over all of that. We're just going to skip over all the bullying and all of that. And cause we, we need, I need to leave that behind as well anyway, but <laughs> you ended up, you ended up at Cornell in the, in the college scholar program and designing your own, the way you didn't have to have a major, you just designed your own course of study, right? You just followed your, I mean, that, that seems like feral wood elf, yeah. junior scientist Academia. bliss, right? Yeah. Just like, yeah, just sort of pick and choose from the course catalog. So I get into the college scholar program and there's only three requirements, right? You have to write a thesis. You have to take these two crazy, you know, the biggest assortment to take from, but two crazy multi-topic mashed together, you know, psychology and film, Jungian analysis of film was one of the ones I took. And you have to pass the Cornell swim test, which is this crazy throwback to a time where kids were, I think we're drowning in Lake Cayuga. And so the university decided you cannot graduate Cornell until you can swim four laps without touching the wall in a pool. So that, so it was crazy. I came in freshman year thinking I would be a bio major. And that's a very rugged structured degree, especially with a million pre-meds going through that major. And I left freshman year applying to be in this program where you can be like, we, you want, I went and did Cornell in Washington, um, got a chance to do some research on environmental racism that actually ended up getting published. I mean, it just total charmed existence experience at Cornell. I got to study science writing with Carl Sagan freshman year. I mean, it could not have been a more idealized experience. Um, but yeah, just trying to get to those roots of where does it break down between science and policy? And as we sit here in 2020, many years after I graduated Cornell, I'm still wondering why we can't you know, it's not just papers. It's like watching doctors and nurses die as they try and save the population, watching what's now going to be hundreds of thousands of Americans die from, you know, we understand virology. We've understood virology for a long time. Um, a lot of people knew in January and February, this was going to get so bad. And, you know, people just weren't going to understand logarithmic growth and they weren't going to understand that this isn't about keeping yourself safe. It's about keeping everybody around you safe and, and all that stuff. So yeah, I guess I'm still frustrated about that question, but aren't we all? Yeah. Yeah. Why can't we make good decisions based on stuff we already know? Well, and, and what about science is so scary and threatening for certain segments of our society? What were they told and, you know, who are they believing that it seems like it's people who look down on them and are trying to one-up them and harm them in some way? Yeah. As mm -hmm. opposed to reality, which, you know, most of science is desperate to protect other people and, you know, make things better. And, you know, people don't go into science, generally don't go into science because they want to harm people. Um, but we still, as a culture, need to find the way to make science accessible and fun and something people can own and feel confident about. Mm. Right. Uh, it's not about being better than somebody else. It's about, wow, check this out. So then you, you told a story before, not on this podcast yet, but um, you told a story to me when we were prepping for this podcast about what you thought you were going to do with that crazy patched together exploratory program. And you went into your advisor's office and said, right. So I get to the end of all this. And, um, frankly, I got really burned out on the policy side of the question, right. Doing a 
fall semester junior year in DC. Um, you know, I say like, I, I kind of threw in there that, oh yeah, I just did this random intern, intern research project and it got published. The data I gathered and tabulated and presented, you know, for that semester project in fall 1992 did get published, you know, almost done with college. And all of a sudden, Benjamin Goldman, who's this amazing environmental justice advocate, is being introduced to me because he and I are going to co-author the publication of this little kind of throwaway project. I, I thought, I mean, it wasn't throwaway. It was, it was important, but I didn't think it was that innovative. It was just building on a study that had already been done where, you know, in 1987, funded by the United Church of Christ, they realized setting aside income, setting aside, you know, other variables, toxic waste facilities are in Black neighborhoods, right? They just are. And I was curious in 1992 to see if that had gotten any better. Because again, to, to my lifespan at the time, I was like, well, it's been five years. Surely we've fixed this now. Uh, you know, and it, spoiler alert, it had not gotten better. And here we are in 2020 and it still has not gotten better. Um, and as a result, you know, we see tying this right into 2020, people are scratching their heads and going, oh, shucks, more, more Black people die of COVID. More Indigenous people die of COVID. More Latinx people die of COVID. Why? Why? Why is that? You know, and you can trace all kinds of environmental justice issues that directly impact everyday health um, that have set people up to be more vulnerable when something like this tears through. Uh, but anyway, like I digress. Um, it was very frustrating to me to deal with the policy side in college. And I was quite burned out by the time college finished. And I was just like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make this happen. Maybe I'll just go become a doctor. And my, uh, not, not that that's easy, by the way. Right. <laughs> just, yeah, I'll just become a doctor. You know, I mean, that's incredibly hard. But um, for me, I was saying it to my advisor because I wanted something really clear and delineated and safe. And he was like, just threw his hands up and was like, wait, really, really? You, you have this willingness to dive into the unknown and pull together things people don't see are connected and you need to keep doing that for the world. Um, and, and I can't say my reaction to him was great. I mean, I threw away everything and ran away to see him was a cook for two years. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you're right and I hear you um so maybe just neither for now um and it has taken me until this past year to come back to the science and policy stuff and really look at how we can um bring that back to bear on climate and I'm very excited about that work but even that work I've put on hold to try and uh grind through some of the COVID stuff because this yeah. is this is so existential this is so major and so terrifying and so did not need to happen, right? Mm -hmm. We just need to look at the world to understand that there are much better ways of dealing with this. <laughs> so from the outside, Laura, from this distance, it looks like you have managed to be an early adopter of a lot of things, even before the phrase early adopter was on everybody's mm -hmm. tongue, even before, you know, Simon Sinek explained the curve that wasn't even his curve. But, you know, you were studying environmental justice and environmental racism before that was even a thing. And now it's, you know, now all these kids from the Sunrise Movement are talking about environmental justice and environmental racism. So it takes a long time. When you're an early adopter, things take a long time. 
So, and one of the things you, one of the things that you were famously an early adopter of is, is Twitter. You wrote the book, Twitter for Dummies. You're credited with convincing, uh, Guy Kawasaki, Guy Kawasaki to invest in Twitter and to see that it could actually make some money. Wow. What was, well, invest his time in it, to be fair. He, okay. was, he was not an investor, but he, um, when I first wrote to him and said, oh my God, you know, the stuff you're doing, you could do it so much better on Twitter. He's like, I don't have time. And I said, well, here's, here's what you're trying to get done. And here's how you could do it faster using Twitter. And, you know, at the time that I'm cold calling this guy, not even calling, right. Like emailing him through his website. He's this <laughs> famous. Yeah, I mean, that's my go-to, right. It's like, well, they have a contact us page. Let me write. I can't tell you the number of times that has worked dozens, dozens of times, but with guy, he's, and that is so far, that is so far outside of my thought process and my experience. I mean, mean, Kelly probably thinks about that a little bit more. Like what if I could just, yeah, just reach out and try. I mean, that's all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out poor impulse control can be super adaptive, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on how you contextualize it. So yeah, I literally was watching a live live stream of this man on stage at a conference. He's a big keynote speaker. He's well-known in Silicon Valley. He's sort of the like startup guy's startup guy. Uh, No pun intended because his name is Guy. Uh Uh, But I'm watching him live stream saying Twitter's super dumb while I'm writing a blog post about how amazing I think Twitter is. So I just sent him the blog post. um, Awesome. And I fell over with shock when my, my phone rang a few days later and the the number on call ID was Silicon Valley. And I'm like, hello. He's like, this is Guy Kawasaki. I'm like, what? (laughs) Wow. Tell me more. Yeah. And then, you know, when he got into it and started grooving and seeing like, oh, I run a website where we're trying to find rumors as they break out. And she's right. That's exactly what Twitter's great at. Um, he in turn told everybody else like, well, Stasio convinced me, uh, and he literally like, we were having dinner the night before a big, um, keynote panel he was running at South by Southwest. And it was really just cause we had never met in person and we were both going to be at this conference in Texas. So he's like, let's have dinner. And, and he and I, and another woman who's a blogger had dinner and we were just having fun. And he's like, you're going to be on my panel tomorrow. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> I just, you're fun. Let's go. And I was like, all right, you know, and and I should have probably asked him at the time, what's the panel about? I was up on stage with all these women before I found out the topic. And the topic was, you know, women who've started companies in Silicon Valley. And I'm like, haven't done that. um, But okay. So I'm sitting with, you know, the founder of SlideShare and, you know, three, four other women, but guy made it work. And the funny thing was, you know, jokes on me. Cause like two years later I was starting a company in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, so funny things happen when you follow your passions and your hunches, uh, and luck is truly my superpower. I have had many examples where stuff that shouldn't have worked, um, both good and bad, but stuff that should not have worked, uh, just worked right out. Well, I think, yeah, I think luck is a part of it. And if there's something about you, Laura, and I, I, this is kind of how I distill it. I don't know if it makes any sense at all, but it seems like you've always come across as somebody who's in love with an idea as a, as something to share rather than as something to try and monetize or try to get somebody else to, to, you're not pitching, you're always sharing. And I think that, Mm. I think that comes through. 
Um, and this is, and you know, it's like all of Silicon Valley and all of business is trying to learn that now. Again, you're kind of, you've kind of been an instinctual early adopter of this idea of, of inbound marketing and content marketing and just keep sharing without any, keep the expectations out of it as much as you can. And, and people will, people will be attracted to that. And I think that's how you're, I think that's how you made your luck happen. Thank you. Um, I know we're not going to talk about bullying, but I do think <laughs> some of that skill for me came from the extreme bullying I experienced in elementary school. Because at some point when you can't fit in and you can't make them happy and you can't get a better result, no matter how many times you try and mask your tendencies, um, you kind of stop caring on some level. I mean, it, it still hurts. It's still complicated. I'm not writing off all the trauma of all the people who've ever been bullied. It's still awful. Um, but it did lead me to a few skills where I didn't worry that much, you know, so you match that impulse, lack of impulse control, constant creative fascination with all the things all the time. Um, you know, we all have a pandemic brain right now where it's hard to focus. So, so my, my superpower of like noticing things on the horizon and trying to find ways that they connect is at an all time high, which is terrifying because it also means it's hard to get through some basic tasks. Yeah. Um, but, but in a way that's adaptive in a situation like this, because it makes you much more oriented towards finding opportunities to pounce on problems and solve them. Yeah. But when you combine all that stuff together with, you know, the dose of bullying that I got, it let me stop really caring with how it was going to land. And so I would, you know, say a lot of things and see how they landed and then, you know, run down the ones that were, were taking hold. Um, but there's a, there's a dark side of that too, right? Because if you don't really care how things land, you end up hurting a lot of people without having any idea you're hurting them. You're just kind of like, Hey, everybody, I noticed this. And sometimes that thing you noticed is something that you know politer people know not to comment on Whoopsie. so but yeah so i want to i mean just kind of coming from it from the other perspective like i am inhibited by the thing that you're not inhibited by like i wouldn't have reached out to guy kawasaki on his website because i'd be like oh he doesn't need another person pitching him something you know it's like oh no like kelly's like smacking me upside the head like do it do it but I'm getting better. I'm but getting better. Pitching anything. I wasn't saying, right. hey, you call me and ask me how to use Twitter. I was just saying like, hey, I think you're missing something. Here's what I think. And here's where I've ex explained it. And, and you know, the, some of the amazing connections I've been able to make where somebody who's really, really high placed in their field, really successful, really connected, has become involved with me in some way, you know, in my career in particular, it's usually because the first few interactions we had, I didn't ask for anything. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, hi. <laughs> yeah. Or, well, you provided oh, him with value. Right. In that it, particular sort of, instance, you were, you put something in front of him that he hadn't considered before. Right. And that's, that's been the consistent through line I can point to where people have, you know, really opened up their, Rolodexes to me or opened up their influence and, you know, made introductions or gone to bat for me. Usually I've had some serendipitous chance, probably because I was looking for it, um, to be useful to them first. 
another example is there was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, Julia Angman, who I was following on Twitter because I had a Twitter app store and she wrote about technology and startups. And one day, actually it was one night, I was curled up in bed with my daughter, you know, trying to get her to fall asleep. And to give you a sense of how long ago this was, I'm like right hand, one hand tweeting on my Blackberry. Um, so ancient times. And Julia tweeted that she had just installed this one app. And, you know, it's because when you install the app, it tweets for you. And so I saw that tweet and I right away replied to her and said, hey, uh, you're going to want to go in and reset the default um, privacy settings on that. Because what it what it did, the app was so bad. You know how like Twitter has a location field? The location field back at this time was literally your latitude and your longitude. And just installing that app set it from nothing to your exact Latin launch. Wow. Right? And, you know, Charles, this is a video show, but Charles's chin is on the floor right yeah. now. And, um, you know, so for, for that to be my first time ever talking to this woman to say like, oh, hey, I got you. Right. Um, right. Left her completely open to me talking to her in the future. And I, in fact, you're like telling her, story. you were like telling her that her, her dress wasn't zipped up all the way or she had toilet paper on her shoe. Look out, look out, look out. Or, you know, even more pernicious, like someone can, can you know, find you now and you're a mm -hmm. journalist and you probably want your privacy. You write for the Wall Street Journal. And um, the funny thing was I told that story in a blog post years later and she saw it because I tweeted it and tagged her. Go figure. Um, she saw it and she came back with something that completely surprised me. She's like, that was the start of my career pivot into internet security and privacy. Wow. So you never know. Right. 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 Like listen and watch and follow. And if there's someone you want to connect to, just see what they're saying. See where you can empathize with them, where you can answer a question they're already asking. That's why I found Twitter to be such an incredibly fertile and interesting space. Because um, keep in mind, this was 2007 and the popular opinion was Twitter is how Silicon Valley insiders make plans to go out drinking. <laughs> And I was this homebound mom of two kids under two in Boston, you know, trying to restart my career from next to nothing after, you know, two and a half years of mostly giving birth to children and doing a little contracting on the side. Um, and here I was left, right and center, getting to know some of my heroes in the industry, some of the people whose blogs I read all the time, uh, you know, having Guy Kawasaki pick up the phone and just call me out of the blue. So I just was literally turning around and trying to tell everybody else what was happening to me in a way that they could use it for their career, their business, their social cause. Um, and it was, you know, it was really wild, fun, early days. And I just didn't have the sense to shut up about it. So <laughs> that worked out well for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's, uh, let's take a break for a little bit and let everybody, uh, Look to the horizon. Encourage all of our all of our audience right now to look to the horizon and see if you see something coming. There's a lot of things on the horizon that are a little scary, and that's okay. It's okay to see the things on the horizon that scare us, because then we can be a little bit more prepared. And I'm really looking forward to, to talking more with Laura about the, some of the things that you've actually done in a really empowered. Not I mean, what's the positive way to say reactionary progressive. Uh, well, uh, she's responded to res the challenges. Yeah. yeah, responding to the challenges. Yeah. Um, by seeing those things on the horizon. And we'll be right back with the Rocket Feather podcast. Yes, we will.
Thank you, everybody, for listening this far. We hope that you are pulling out some of those clear takeaways and and loading up your basket of inspiration, listening to Laura. You know, on the one hand, she kind of makes things seem really easy as if you just sort of fall into these amazing successes. And she does, you know, she does give a nod to luck for sure. But just in case you want to kind of grab some of this and try and make it work for you, we put in the show notes some of what we think are the key talking points and and takeaways from this first section, kind of about how to be an entrepreneur, how to turn to where you're needed. Mm. For another take on enlightened crisis leadership, you could listen to episode 24, How to Belong. That was with Tracy McConnell. That is a fun episode too, if I do say so. Fun. I don't know. Tracy's just really got amazing energy and she's great to be around. Yeah. 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 She's very positive. Very, um, yeah, really positive. Yeah. yeah. Another, she's another person. Optimistic. No, yeah. Another, another optimistic woman with a can do attitude. Mm-hmm. I don't know how y'all do Can't it. Can't get I, enough I re- of them. I really don't know how y'all do it. And if you want to see my actual face and learn about how to create an unbeatable organizational culture, you could check out the new Facebook live series that I'm doing with DC Campbell. It starts August 26th at five o'clock Pacific Daylight Time or Arizona Time, as we like to call it. We'll be talking about DC's book, The Seven Pillars of an Unbeatable Culture. And we're just going to dissect one pillar at a time. And the first pillar is about committing to the kinds of people you're going to hire, committing to hiring for, for great attitude. I expect to learn a lot. Uh, You know, I've been a, I've been a leader in charge of kind of corporate culture and I have grand ambitions. We have grand ambitions to be building a new, a new business culture as we were going to hire some people at some point. Yeah. That sounds really cool. I'm excited to hear that because I, I am not in the loop on that one. So I get to enjoy it like a real audience person. That's great. That's great. Yeah. It's very, very tidy, short, punchy book with some great Mm. stories in it. DC really teaches through stories. So I'm expecting to learn some great ones. There's definitely a story in there about how Southwest Airlines, Zillow, and the Hells Angels all have something in common. Oh, I got to find that out. I got to hear that story. Definitely want to stay tuned in for that one. But in the meantime, back to more conversation with Laura Fitton. Yeah. Welcome back to the Rocket Feather podcast. We're here with uh, Sleepy Joe Biden, Uh also known as as Kelly Roberge. I'm Charles Matthews, and we're talking with Laura Fitton, an an early adopter slash uh, childhood wood elf slash serial <laughs> entrepreneur slash serial entrepreneur yeah 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 and we kind of left off talking about you know you shaking up silicon valley by telling everybody how awesome twitter was going to be and kind of fast forwarding to what you've been working on most recently you started something called enough enough.co mm-hmm. and that's the enough yeah, and you're talking about coming back to your biology background and 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 public policy background and the importance of that. What it's it's about responding to climate change using financial tools and the power of the markets to to alter uh, our our current unsustainable path. Is that is that kind of synopsize yeah. it properly? 
Yeah, I'm trying to trying to lean into my impatience in a productive way. Um, and policy is great, activism is great. Neither one of them is getting the job done on climate, mm. and both of them are slow. And because there are so many amazing, brilliant, well-connected people already leaning very, very hard on policy and leaning very, very hard on activism, when I sort of popped out the other end of my tech startup career, you know, selling a startup to a software company and then being at the software company for eight years and then ending my time there and thinking, well, what do I really want to do when I grow up? I came back to climate and realized, you know, again, I'm not putting down policy. I'm not putting down activism. Those are super important. And thank goodness people are working on that. But the lane that I found for myself was what if I took some of what I've learned about the market and its ability to make things scale quickly and pulled back in that long, long um, line all the way back to my last work on climate as an undergraduate and figured out how to evangelize, kind of how I evangelized Twitter 10 years ago, 12 years ago, this idea that we have a lever on climate that is market forces that we're not employing right now. And that it's not, you know, when you first start telling people, oh, I want to talk about the climate economy and I want to talk about how the market could slow climate change, because obviously the market has created climate Mm. change. So people right away reject that notion. And then if they don't reject it 100 percent, they usually come back with something along the lines of, oh, Laura, you mean like those companies and those products where environmentalists can pay more for a thing? But the thing is a little less bad for climate. And I, I'm like, nope, nope, because that's not market forces. That's, um, you know, that's impact investing. That's mm. okay. You know, the, the unit economics aren't as good, but gee, you know, the do-gooders are going to pay for it. Because mm-hmm. uh, that just won't scale the same way that true market forces alignment will. Um, so probably the easiest example to throw out there is, you know, look, we've needed electric cars to be awesome and highly adapted for a very long time. And a million nonprofits went after that and advocated and lectured and told people and, and baby, if giants wrote an awesome song and, and <laughs> Elon Musk stood up and said, I'm just going to make you an awesome car. Yeah. And you will he, want. Looked at, he looked at what the price point had to be to make electric cars work. And it was really expensive. So he's like, all right, We've got to make a really expensive car that the people who buy really expensive cars want to buy and, you know, put a step function, nonlinear jump into the adaptation of electric cars. Um, Another good example where I've actually, you know, kind of become a company ambassador because I'm like, this is great. This is brainless. Um, I was trying to take, I I have the privilege to to run a short-term rental property on Airbnb up in Maine. And as I was doing all this research around, okay, what can businesses be doing for climate? I gave myself the challenge of, all right, what would it take to make this tiny little business climate neutral? Um, And just the one question of how do I change out my power source, my just straight up, you know, central Maine power energy provider to make it sustainable was taking me weeks of research. 
it was so confusing. There were like hundreds of PDFs online that gave the energy mix of each possibility that I could choose from, but it was just an incredibly, you know, and, and I was like environmentally aware, have some science background, really, really motivated to get this done. And I was like not getting it done over and over and over because every time I got on the computer to try and figure it out, it was just overwhelming. Mm. Like I got all my LED bulbs changed out in the house before I arrived at the answer to what this question was. Um, and that took me 12 hours of research and climbing on ladders, right? So then I listened to a podcast where they interview the founder of Arcadia Power. And I realized I literally just need to go to their website and give them my central main power login information. And then boom, without any additional cost to me, and in fact, with some cost savings because of how they buy and sell energy, I would automatically be 50% wind renewable offsets for all my consumption. It took eight minutes, right? I did both houses, right? I'm lucky enough to have a primary residence and an investment house. Both of them were done in about half an hour and it was just so amazing. And then for a small upgrade price, you can go 100%, right? So they are buying wind energy offsets. They're basically investing in wind energy on behalf of all the power you're consuming and I think that cost me like an extra $11 a month. So it was just such a no brainer, consumer friendly way to get where I was trying to get. And we're still at a place where so many of the things we could do about climate feel hard and complicated and confusing and inaccessible. And I'm really happy that there's a wave of startups trying to fix that because the reality is we have the technology we need. It would be great if someone invented some crazy energy technology that like blew everything away, but the stuff we already have that's already out of the labs, that's already proven, just scaling up would make huge difference. Yep. And when you look at why isn't it scaling, there are just oodles of really dumb reasons. Like mm -hmm. insurance companies don't know how to write the insurance policy on that type of power plant. Um, investors are still investing in oil and gas and, you know, stuff like that because they don't realize that the money they're investing in those is very likely to suffer serious losses, right? Because there's a lot about the economics of fossil fuels that, you know, it's not just don't invest in them if you don't want to kill the climate. It's don't invest in them if you don't want to kill your portfolio. Wow. And yeah. help people see those um, climate risks where you're going to lose your money if you're invested in a certain thing and climate opportunities, right? Where you're going to make more money if you're invested in a certain thing. Yeah. So I just want to pause because I want to make a really clear call to action to everybody who's listening right now because we're, we're uh, Arcadia Power mm -hmm. members as well. Oh, nice. So again, nice. anybody, anybody, anybody Anywhere. in the U.S. Yeah. can go to, yeah. is it Arcadia.com? We'll put the, I we'll put the link in the show notes. We'll yeah. make sure it's yeah. in the outro. You go there. Uh, and you sign up and you basically take yourself kind of virtually and you don't even need to worry your head about how this is happening. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but you basically sign up for being a renewable power consumer, no matter what the mix is on your grid. And in Northern Arizona, our grid is almost all coal. There's a little mm -hmm. bit of wind as well. Most of the wind energy that we produce in Northern Arizona actually goes to LA. Again, don't worry your pretty head. Just go there and sign up. You don't pay any more. So I want everybody who's listening right now, who's not driving, hey. pause, <laughs> pause right now. Don't even wait for the break. Pause right now. Go we'll to, be here when you get back. We'll be here when you get back. Go to Arcadia.com, sign up your house. Takes 
20 minutes, 15 minutes and you're, and you're set. And And then basically you're just paying Arcadia. Arcadia pays your power bill, but they are producing the renewable energy and you're investing now for the price of your electric bill, you are investing in getting renewable energy up and running in the world. Yeah. And they're going into the live power markets and buying renewable power at times where it's cheap Mm. and they're often saving you money as well. Yeah. Um, So just, so just, so just pause everybody. We're just going to take a minute. Go do that right now. Go do it. Go do it. And, you know, full disclosure, I am an ambassador, but you know, I'm an ambassador because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Did you do it? Do you feel better now? Doesn't that feel great? That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. You are now investing, as Kelly said, you are now investing in renewable energy and therefore a workable, sustainable future for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And so my big mission uh, right now is try and find more examples of this. Try and help people understand this idea. Try and evangelize to get it through people's heads that every single one of us, whether you are in a grocery store spending, you know, food stamp benefits, or whether you are overseeing a gigantic sovereign wealth fund with ridiculous amounts of money, you are in some way paying for climate change to happen. You are providing dollars that will make it worse. And as depressing as that is, and the reality is no matter how much of an environmentalist you are, some percentage of your dollars that you have in a bank, that you invest if you're lucky enough to be able to invest things, or that you just plain spend to get through the day, um, does fund things that will hurt climate. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is there are other funding and purchasing and savings decisions you could make that would move us in the opposite direction, right? right? So let's say you're, you know, you're doing that like subsistence level shopping for your family and food, understanding that, you know, meat and cheese, while very nutritious, is going to have a much bigger climate footprint than, you know, plant-based sources of protein, right? And that yeah. you could make that choice in feeding your family. And let me, right let me just, up to that. yeah, well, let me give a concrete example again here locally. Like if you're somebody who's on SNAP, on, on food stamps, you can go to the grocery store and, or you can actually go to the farmer's market. And oftentimes the farmer's market will give you double value mm. for your SNAP benefits so that you can buy locally produced healthy food. And yes, it does take more effort to cook. It does take, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a great kitchen, it's a challenge, but the farmers at the farmer's market will help you with easy recipes as well. Mm -hmm. So you actually can get more for your money at the farmer's market. Again, just like we were talking about sometimes the Arcadia power bill. Without the plastic packaging, without the the transportation cost, without the fossil fuels. Yep. And you're helping in this particular case, you're actually helping your neighbors do better as well. Like these folks at the farmer's market are folks who live just up the road in Chino Mm -hmm. Valley or just over there in Dewey. And Um, it's building community also when you get to know people and you know where your food's coming from and just it feels good. But trying to get the word out about that is really challenging. mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's local job creation. It's, um, you know, if you are supporting people who are making food near you, if something bad happens to the food supply chain, you are more likely to have safe food sources near you. Mm-hmm. Um, and farmers, you know, as Kelly said, who are not putting it on trucks and spending the fossil fuels to get it to you. Um, but also who are using methods of farming that are good for the soil mm-hmm. literally sinks carbon right? Soil wants carbon in it. You can literally undo climate damage by farming the right way, by gardening the right way, by, you know, soils used to have, I forget the numbers, but soils used to have a ton of carbon sink capacity. And when we changed how we farm, that went down. So just going back to the ways of farming that sink organic matter into the soil literally vacuums, you know, people are kind of aware that, you know, like forests pull carbon out of the air, but literally the soil itself, not even the crop in it can pull carbon out of the air. Wow. Uh, so, so yeah, so we all get a vote. We all get to vote with our money. Um, if you are one of the families that's lucky enough to have any kind of bank account somewhere, right. And it, it can be very modest. If you have every dollar you have in that bank, whether it's a checking account, a savings account, the bank is lending $10 to somebody to do something. So let's say you have $100 in that account, the bank is loaning someone $1,000. And so here's where you have another chance to make a big difference on climate without making a single difference to your personal finances. Find out what kinds of projects your bank invests in because it's your money. And there's a 10 to one ratio in how much they can loan out, depending on how many deposits they have and move your bank to one that's investing in the kinds of things you want to see in the world. And if you want a very non-technical briefing on this, go watch Mary Poppins again when they're trying to convince the little boy to invest his tuppence in the bank. They go on about, you know, it's very imperialistic and horribly problematic, but they go on about, you know, you're building... Um, you know, something in the Nile and you're building um, a canal in Panama and you're doing all this stuff by being part of a bank. So be sure to understand what is your bank investing your money in? And if it's not what you want to see in the world, simply move your money. You get to keep all the money. You just Mm -hmm. take it out of one bank and you put it into another. Yep. Like a credit Um, union is a a better, a better bet for a lot of, a lot of this. Yeah. And this is one of those messages that's totally politically neutral, because I'm not saying come invest in the banks that I think are investing in good things. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, look, whoever you are and wherever your money is, get right with things and realize this is how banks work and put your money where it backs up your beliefs, because chances are most people would look at what their bank is funding and go, I don't want to fund that, but you are 10 to one funding that with every yeah, dollar wow. you provide. So, and even- you know, I, I just think it's incredibly important. And credit unions are a great example. Most of the time, a local bank, I'll, I'll call it another movie scene that's pretty iconic. Again, it's still, you know, like old white men talking, but um, it's a wonderful life mm-hmm. when townspeople all come and try and take their money out of the savings and loan. He's like, look, your money's not here. Mm-hmm. It's in so-and-so's farm. It's in so-and-so's store. If you ask me for your money, I'm going to have to take my money back from them. And you're not going to have that store anymore. Right. And that's what makes up our town. So obviously the more local your banking is, the better. Um, Maryland 
wait at the Hewlett Packard Foundation has a whole, like her personal webpage talks about how to find banks that align with your values. Um, there are banks, my, my business bank for the new company that I set up is in Brooklyn. It's Spring Bank. It's a CDFI, which means they are investing in their local community in businesses there. This is more important than ever with COVID impacting local businesses. Um, I can tell you, you know, it's a little personal, right? But when I look at what I've had to do um, during, you know, the first few months of COVID impacting everybody's income, mine as well, what I've had to do with the mortgage that's on that Airbnb when for five months it was illegal to rent it out. And what I've had to do talking to my lender on my primary residence, it's just a night and day difference because the the home in Maine is financed through a local bank that understands what's going on with all Maine, Maine rental properties and immediately came up with programs to make it work, right? And mm. now I'm all back on track. And you know the money I wasn't able to pay when I was refunding tens of thousands of dollars to Airbnb customers mm. is now at the very end of the loan. Right, because they understood the economics of where they were and who in their community they were financing. With my primary mortgage, it's a little more complicated. It's going to be okay. I'm fine, but it was very different because they don't own the loans. They are accountable to their investors. They have to, you know, comply with a whole different set of regulations. So. It is a good rule of thumb that the more local your banking is, the more it's going to be tied with the economic well-being of your local community. Right, um, right. But you can go very specialized, right? You can you can go deep and find banks that are specifically either divesting from X, Y, and Z or investing in the kinds of things you want to see in the world. Right. And again, that's not that's market forces. That's not you tithing. That's not you giving up money. That's not mm-hmm. you donating and giving away. Um, and if you have a very modest bank account, that's within your reach. It's not just for the rich people to do. That's awesome. That's so helpful. And I think more, Mm -hmm. more people need to know that we'll put some links to the Hewlett Packard Mm -hmm. foundation lady and links to Arcadia and, and, uh, yeah, all the good stuff in the show notes. So you definitely want to check that out. And obviously links to the enough company, which is, Mm -hmm. I love the name of that. It's enough. We already have it. It's already here it's already enough and i think we've had enough and we've had enough as well for sure already so and that's you know kind of going back to the story the the kind of this through line of this uh uh you know your kind of weaponized uh lack of attention span your weaponized um uh exploratory (laughs) you know science mind like again you found you found the niche you found the rail you found the track that nobody else was in and like this, this is actually where we can make a difference. We don't have to march in the street if that's not what you want to do, or we can do this as well as marching in the street. We can do this as well as being a public policy wonk and, and, um, working for a foundation, but there's nobody doing this for kind of the common purpose, the common person in the same way that you adopted Twitter as a mom who was just like isolated and alone. And like, wait a minute, this is actually useful for people. I can figure out how to sell this to other people because I'm that person. I'm the person who's trying to figure out how to set up my home so that it's carbon neutral. Like, why is this so hard? No, you go ahead. And this brings us to uh, an interesting thing about 2020, um, which is that I came, you know, out of the gate with this in January, launched it on my birthday, was so fired up. Every single day, there was a big major news item about a company saying, okay, we're going to become climate neutral. 
about, you know, a bank taking a strong stance and saying, you know, we can't invest in fossils, not just because it's bad for the climate, but because it's bad for our investors and their money that we are, you know, fiduciary responsible for. You had Jim Cramer of Mad Money on TV screaming, that's it, I'm done. Gas and oil is like tobacco. There's too much liability with it. It's going to go down. It's already going down over time. So you have all this going on and then COVID hits. And some people say, oh, COVID's this black swan that's disrupting our economic system. Another analysis that I think is much more interesting is it's actually a gray rhino, meaning that people could see it coming, but didn't think it was threatening, right? And I didn't coin that. I, I don't remember the name of the woman who coined that, but again, we can put that in the show notes. But, you know, climate, and I, and I do have a blog post about it up on enough.co if you want to look for um, gray rhino explaining both COVID and climate are this thing that, you know, we see it, but we just don't think a rhino's dangerous. And guess what? Rhinos are super dangerous. And um, I made the decision in March, partly influenced by having a weird three-week feverish uh, illness that made me lose my taste for a while that was never diagnosed, but who knows what it was. Mm. Um, Another case of being an early adopter. (laughs) Right. Um, I made the hard decision to, to suspend operations on the NF company for a while um, because I did not feel, especially as, you know, I'm kind of a professional dilettante, right? So I was very new to a lot of the personal finance and economic questions around this. And given the market in free fall did not feel qualified to keep spouting all this like, hey, climate's going to make you lose money because COVID was making people lose money now. So I made um, the difficult decision to shove it onto the back burner. Um, and it has stayed there for months and I am still planning on bringing it back, but I'm bringing it back slowly because there's just so many economic variables changed for so many Americans in such a devastating way that while climate still matters and we still got to push hard on it, I didn't feel it was the right time to be screaming about the climate economy in quite the same way until we understood what the economy itself was going to be. So I'm, I'm easing back. I'm mm-hmm. getting back there. I still believe in the underlying principles, but I had the sense to read the room and say, okay, this is not the time for, you know, your girl who's just kind of jumping in and going like, oh, that's how banks work. <laughs> um, to really be driving people towards personal financial decisions. Um, and it's going to be um, fascinating to get back into that work and have it a little more informed by what we're learning in terms of what's happening to the economy with COVID, right? Where those micro businesses and supporting the person down the street who's an entrepreneur and trying to help them figure out how to pivot their business so it can still exist has become a hugely important theme. Um, COVID has already destroyed, has already destroyed by one estimate, 50% of black owned businesses. Right. And you have, you know, everything going on in race this year where so many of us are just really starting to wake up to stuff that people have been patiently explaining Mm -hmm. slash screaming at us for decades and we just have chosen not to hear. That's got to be tied in, right? The environmental justice is economic justice, climate justice. Um, There's three major pandemics right now, right? There's racism, there's COVID, and there's climate. And the answer I see to all three of them, you know, like you have your hammer, everything looks like a nail. The answer I see to all three of them is we have to shift money and power from where it's been to where it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. 
there is research from um, Project Drawdown suggesting that simply putting lands back under indigenous control is a very tactical way to fight climate. Oh, nice. Because of the way those nations tend to manage their land. Again, any dirt anywhere, any bad dirt with no organic matter in it that can be somehow made to grow. I mean, God, even I'll, I'll betray all the ecologists in my life and say, even if you can get it to grow a um, invasive species, right? you're thinking, right? And I had the great fortune before this world went sideways in 2020. At the end of 2019, I went horse trekking in Mongolia. Oh. That is an enormous country. And 70% of the pasture soils are degraded. And when I say degraded soils, go out and look at a gravel driveway. Mm. That's all the land looks like, mm. right? And how much of it is, you know, overgrazing and mining and stuff like that. The point is, if you just somehow found ways to make those billions of acres muddy, right? Mm. Or able to feed or able to have some organic matter in that gravel, you'd be pulling tons and tons of carbon out of the air. So, so there are a lot of ways to solve this stuff that, that you know, are maybe not obvious. So we've got to rebuild a more just economy. And part of that justice has to incorporate climate. So I'd, I'd love to take another little break and I'd, and I'd love for your thoughts on what it takes kind of mentally, emotionally to be able to see the gray rhino for what it is and to be, and to be able to pivot because I'm thinking, you know, people don't want to necessarily think about their banking. People don't necessarily want to think about where their food comes from or how it's grown. So I'm just kind of curious what somebody, and you know, I'm asking the question before I should ask the question. So we're going to come back and talk about, yeah. you know, your ideas about like, what does it take to pivot and reinvent and how can it be fun instead of onerous, whatever, an yeah. onerous thing? Yeah. We'll be yeah. right back with yeah. that, with, with that promise. Sounds good. the Zokmia of the week this week is Kathy. She has been through some stuff, let me tell you. And if you're looking for a, a best gal pal to go get some drinks with on Friday and just, you know, sort through your stuff, Kathy's the one. She will listen and share and she's there for you and you can be there for her. She's a cool kitty and she is working on her stuff and who doesn't appreciate that? So nominate someone you see doing good things or just someone who needs a boost to win Kathy in this week's Zokni of the Week drawing. Yep. Go ahead and put somebody's name uh, on the website in the comments, just the first name, or put it in any of our social media feeds, including tweeters. And speaking of the web, you can also find links to all of Laura's ventures and her calls to action and some resources to follow up on our expanded show notes. And that's all on our webpage at rocketfeather.com slash pod. New and improved. And if you find this podcast helpful or valuable to you, especially during these crazy COVID times, would you leave us a testimonial, a comment or a review? 
You can do it in iTunes or at podchaser.com slash rocketfeather, all one word, rocketfeather. We produce this podcast for free with no ads, and it would just mean the world to us to get your feedback and comments. Okay, now back for the last part of the show. This is the part where we talk about evil, so get ready. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully those of you who didn't do it at our previous unscripted pause uh, took this moment to go sign up for Arcadia. And now you're feeling awesome because you are purchasing wind power. Mm -hmm. The wind is blowing on the Navajo reservation. The wind is blowing in Iowa. The wind is blowing on that beautiful pass at Tehachapi. And you're listening to this podcast powered by sustainable wind energy. It's not just hot air. <laughs> so speaking of hot air, I'm Charles Matthews and I'm here with Kelly Roberge and Laura Fitton, my old buddy from Cornell University and Cornell After Education. And so this is somebody who's pivoted over and over again, who has found new ways to contribute her, her gifts and her energy, uh, being an early champion of Twitter, being a, an early adopter of raising chickens in an urban area. We haven't really mentioned that, but her, her, uh, her Facebook feed is full of, full of chicken stories and gathering eggs, uh, taken a, a financial attack at climate change using simple ways to, to make a future that we can all go for. And one of the other ways that she pivoted that I'm just going to talk about real quickly, but then I kind of want to get into the mindset. Like when you put enough.co enough company on the back burner, your, your climate change company, because of COVID you pivoted toward another need that had showed up. Like there was not enough, or there was, there was enough personal protective gear. People were making it in their in their craft rooms, they were making masks in their craft rooms. People were 3D printing stuff, but it wasn't where it was needed. Yeah. Part of putting Enoughco on the back burner was getting really caught up um, and, and very viscerally terrified for my sister who's a nurse, for many friends of mine who are nurses about like, what do you mean there isn't enough PPE? What happened to the national stockpile? Where'd it go? So, so I just, you know, I saw medical people tweeting, uh, we need PPE. I saw, you know, lots of grassroots organizations rising up and, and, you know, people volunteering and manufacturers pivoting and retooling. And I wanted to amplify it, right? I'm still at heart an evangelist. The main thing I do is point to other people who are doing great work and try and yell louder about it um, to make sure people go to the awesome people doing the awesome work. And I found myself not knowing what to link to. So I literally did a hack I do all the time, which is I opened up a Google Doc. I started listing all the resources I could find. And then I started sharing that Google Doc, right? Uh, not promoting Google here. It's just, if you don't have the resources or know how to create a website, but you do know how to do basic, you know, word processing and formatting, you can create a website just by opening a Google doc, making it publicly shareable, and then sharing that link. And so I would just like, I would find a resource, I would put it on there and then it got messy. So I made it a table and then the table got complicated. So I started breaking up into sections 
And next thing I knew, I had this PPE index and a guy called Eric Reese in Silicon Valley, who's sort of famous for the lean startup movement, reached out and was like, you've got the definitive list of the PPE efforts that are going on. And we have something that at the time was called the PPE coalition. It's now the C19 coalition. So we can you know, deliver a broader base of services. But he's like, you know, we're running a hotline and we literally like need to look at your index to tell people what, you know, and so I got involved volunteering at first for them. And now I'm a formal advisor and, and, you know, spend some time often helping administer the programs and, and doing a lot of partner engagement. We have some amazing companies, um, IBM, HP, Volkswagen, Intel, we have the state of California. We have some amazing of these nonprofits that came up out of nowhere to solve this problem. The open source medical supplies movement is just absolutely incredible, decentralized, hundreds of groups all over the world putting their sewing skills to use, their maker skills to use, their 3D printers to use. We have um, Get Us PPE, which is based pretty near to me here out of Mass General and a lot of other doctors that got that going, Project N95. And you still have this whole ecosystem trying to figure out how to keep people safe and slow the spread of this thing, primarily through PPE still, but also medical supplies. Test kits are short. Looking ahead, we can already see that even once there is a vaccine and even once it is demonstrated safe and even once it is scaled up in production, we're going to still have massive logistical challenges of scaling up, you know, just the little glass vials that it goes in and the syringes and getting it distributed and getting it distributed in the right order. So um, we're trying to really engage, especially with U.S. manufacturing to figure out how they can retool, because, again, that becomes a bit of an economic save as we watch our economy get battered by this thing. So, yeah, that's what I've been working on much more full time than the climate stuff. But again, I just think, you know, you, you've got to read the room and figure out. And even with that, right, we're, we're like PPE, 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 PPE. And we keep hearing, oh, by the way, here's who's dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. And most of the organizations we were working with were white led or, you know, if minority led, not the, the groups that were getting hit the hardest. So we kind of stopped and looked at each other, particularly during the you know, rise of the protest movement around Black Lives Matter. And said, well, wait, what, how is the PPE industry complicit in this? What should we be asking? What should we be telling our partners differently? And we were able to dedicate funds and hire a friend of mine to come in and talk to our partners about, look, you know, if you are delivering supplies and PPE to a community whose death rate is 2x or 3x or 7x the norm, think how many more lives you can save, right? Like, let's be uh... smart about it. So, yeah, we're trying to look, you know, particularly at, again, as higher education institutions go back, many of whom are going back because they have to go back because if they don't go back, they're never, they're just not going to exist anymore. And thinking, okay, there are many colleges, we can't help every single one, but how about the HSIs? How about the HBCUs? How about the tribal colleges and universities? Is there something we can do there? So, you know, this is all sort of in planning stages, we're trying to figure out as we go. Um, but it's, it's, you know, unfortunately, the reality is in our country, in our culture, there is a white lens on everything until you stop and try and take it off and try and ask, okay, what are we missing? Because we're just this well-meaning person with the background we have. 
Um, and so that's been like really compelling work and sadly really ongoing work because the numbers just keep going up and yeah. up and up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we're, we're over our hump here in Arizona and it, and it sounds like the Navajo nation is over their hump or at least the first hump. And now they have, they were suffering greatly mm-hmm. from lack of, yeah. lack of PPE and resources. And, uh, but they, they got organized and they, they reached out and they got the word out and late, but finally they're, they're, they're bouncing back a little bit. It's going to take, it's going to take a lot. They're never going to be, it's going to take a long road of recovery for sure. If you don't think about local factors, um, you know, in the, the DNA nation, I don't think I'm pronouncing that necessarily right in the Navajo nation and in many indigenous communities, there's just not as much running water. So if you come out with a worldwide, like, okay, we can stop COVID, just wash your hands for 20 minutes with tons of water or 20 mm. seconds with tons of water. Right. It's just not applicable. Yeah. They don't right? have There's, it. It's all, you've got to think through, all right, how do we adapt this model of public health to this reality of this community? Um, and there's just so many like gaps in knowledge if um, you don't, get in touch with the people who know how life actually is where you're trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. Your brain is big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's messy. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's, well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, that you talked about earlier was, uh, you, you said in the, in the first section about sort of not being able to read the room and sort of like, Hey, look at this thing. And, and not necessarily recognizing that, the, that your excitement about something isn't exactly welcome. But what I'm hearing you say is that you're finding ways. And I think we're all finding ways to read the room and to read the room, read rooms that we're unfamiliar with and be a little bit uh, more thoughtful about like, wow, I know how this is impacting me. How is that right. going to impact somebody who has a different lifestyle, background, access to resources, et cetera, et cetera? And, and I'm glad you brought that up because something I've been fascinated with, um, probably because I'm, I'm, you know, I have, I'm not diagnosably on the spectrum, but I definitely have some tendencies that when I'm reading about what it's like to be on the spectrum, I'm like, oh, I kind of do that. <laughs> um, And so I'm fascinated with empathy because I'm not always great at it. And I have to really kind of think it and, and to it's, it's work, right. But it's important work and empathy is so at the core of so many solutions, including, you know, right before we took the break, you were talking about, well, why would someone resist building sidewalk cafes? Why are they so stuck on the old ways? They're scared. They're grieving. We are losing so much right now. Everybody's exhausted. Everybody's hitting a wall. I was on a, you know, like a mom's message board for all these like super high power professional women and Silicon Valley women and and stuff like that. And this woman's like, I am stuck being the person in my family who gets the people off the couch and I'm exhausted. And, you know, in answering that, I was both like, yeah, you know, our sewer back up last week and now my kids know what keening sounds like so I sort of told her that but then I also said like look you know the kids are hard to get off the couch because they're hitting the wall too right 
you have Michelle Obama coming out and saying, yeah, I'm experiencing low key symptoms of depression. You know, I don't know anybody who isn't experiencing low key symptoms of depression right now. Right. Like, yeah, and, I just went and got on antidepressants a couple months ago. Cause that was, and it's it, helping, but, but that's real right now. And, and it's because of the stress and it's because of the trauma and it's because of the grief. And like, people are like, well, let's process this trauma. And it's like, we're still in it. So it's going to be hard to process. So we've all just got to take a deep breath and find ways to support ourselves and one another and try to understand, well, what's under that resistance? What's under that fear? What's under that reluctance? What's under that recalcitrance? Um, why is that so hard and scary for people? And, 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 you know, I sound like a monk over here. I certainly don't succeed at any of this, right? Like I get pissy when I'm on the phone with a CSR who isn't giving me the answer I want. And I'm, you know, like, it's really easy to like give Alec Baldwin a terrible time for that one angry voice message. He left his daughter, but like, yeah, you know, if you had all my worst moments, uh, in a really frustrating situation, then I bet I don't look any prettier, you know, like yeah, it's, um, we're human. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we all make is we forget that we all have the capacity for really intense evil in us. Mm. And we buy into this myth of the good, good person and the bad person. And then we also buy into really dumb things like um, binaries and, mm -hmm. you know, believing that, well, I have the opinion and mine is right. So anybody whose opinion is different is opposite and wrong, as opposed to like everything exists on a really long spectrum. And there are a lot of dots along that spectrum. And, and, and it's not even a spectrum. It's like multidimensional is all over the map. And, and so that's not to say like, there is no such thing as objective right and wrong, but it is to say we get very lost in, you know, my position is mine and I can't understand how you can see it differently. So this is going in a different direction than I prepped at the break, but that's, that's, I, I think there is thing uh, really interesting to talk about and really important to talk about, you know, before, right before the break, I was saying like, you know, how can we learn to pivot? How can we learn to be more adaptable? How can we learn to see the thing that's on the horizon? And what we've ended up talking about is, is empathy. And but that's, how, that's the answer. <laughs> it's, it's literally the answer. Well, empathy and a willingness and ability to breathe in complexity. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and I, you know, and I feel myself getting a little cranky, a little, but, but, but when, and, and I'm a huge, I mean, I've, I've been studying nonviolence, I've been studying empathetic communication for decades, and yet I still think, I think the actual divide is between people who see all of those dots along the spectrum that you talked about and those who don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Those who see complexity and can take a breath and engage with complexity and those who insist that there is no complexity, that there is a right and wrong. And that there are simple answers and you're just not doing it. And, and I think those people know there aren't simple answers, but they're terrified of that. So they scream louder saying, no, there are simple answers and they are clear. And my way is the only way. And, and I just, I think empathy is the thing that unlocks what you're asking about, because I think you know, and that's not to say like, oh, it's fine that they feel that way. There's space for all of us in the world. Kumbaya. It's just more like when you're going to confront a really big force of dark evil in the world, 
you can either confront it as um, this exists because it's evil and we just need to destroy it, or you can confront it as this exists because people are super complicated and have fears and have capacity. You know, you know, empathy plays all kinds of weird roles here. Um, I first started getting fascinated about empathy in business because I was doing a lot of influencer relations work, right? I want to get an influencer to feel good about inbound marketing. I want them to come to our event that, you know, we ran at my last employer. Um, I'm going to listen to that person, get involved in their thing, and then encourage them if I think we have a solution for them or some value we can offer. So looking at empathy as a business tool got me thinking about empathy as a tool for social change and, and justice and all that. Yeah, I just get so caught up in like, why are things ways that they shouldn't be that that aren't good for people that that hurt people that, um, you know, could be better. And I think empathy is at the core of all of it. I spoke earlier about, you know, the kind of binaries are, are fake, right there. If, if I'm right, that doesn't mean everybody else is wrong. And, you know, there's nuance. Two other principles that I think are as important as that. And I think when we miss these you get a big Venn diagram, right? Like three overlapping circles, right? So one circle is this belief in the binary where it really doesn't belong, uh, which you can say of almost any binary, but but that's a whole other topic. Um, one of the other really big circles is people are not objects. People mm. are never objects. They're people. But the reality for most of us, again, even the like totally enlightened monks the reality is most people we pass in the day, we scan as objects, whether it's you know someone holding the door, someone getting your coffee, someone driving the other way, someone driving too close behind you and tailgating and pissing you off, right? They, they all become objects. They aren't narrators. They don't have a full and complex story. They're just something either in your way or something that you know you can like, God forbid, use to get more of what you want out of the world. And when we forget that and dehumanize people, that contributes to evil in ways that we don't even notice. Mm. And, and I'll, I'll make that case by showing how it can contribute to good. When I was out on the speaking circuit and, you know, going hotel to hotel to hotel, not sleeping enough, total chaos. I remember running out of my hotel room one morning, of course, late for the keynote I was supposed to be giving. And, you know, because I try and make myself learn this, people are not objects thing. I try really hard to like eye contact, smile, greeting, no matter who it is. And had that very brief moment with the woman who was cleaning the rooms nearby and then, you know, ran onto the elevator and got down to the lobby and was about to get in the car and realized I had forgotten something in my room and I had forgotten my room key. So, you know, rewind the tape and I'm scrambling back. I'm still late. I'm running back up. I'm getting up the elevator and I'm going, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do. Oh, actually, I don't realize about the room key till I get to the room, of course, because otherwise I would have gone to the front desk. I get to the room and I'm like, Oh God. And then I turn and look and she's like, do you need something? Are you okay? Right. Mm. I wasn't nice to her because I wanted her to do me a favor later, but boy, did it work out well. Right. Remembered to, you know, and like my kids laugh at me. I try and always be polite to Alexa and Siri. Ah. I say, please. And thank you. And they used to not react because they're just, you know, the people they were coded by never thought of that. And it's not because I want to be holier than thou. It's because very early on, I think it was probably Siri, I found myself yelling at her one day. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated that she just wasn't understanding. And that's no good for me. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an act of self-care 
And of course, the joke with my kids is, you know, once once the robots take over, they'll be nicer to our family because. Right. <laughs> so people are not objects. Binary is a myth. And then the last piece is something I call Lios, lost in your own shit. Mm-hmm. And this is how most of us spend most of our time. You know, we're just like, we're way, way down in a little hole and all we can see are our immediate, you know, wishes, loves, fears, problems. And we're just so caught up in that, that even when we're trying to push through and engage with another person about a thing, we just have so many layers to cut through to get there. Um, I really learned this one, planning a birthday party for my eldest many years after my divorce. I think it was the same year he remarried. So it was a long time into it. And we're just trying to do something simple. I and mean, this is a very friendly divorce, right? It was a very amicable situation. We're trying to figure out the date that the birthday party should happen. We're still doing joint birthdays, right? And yet we both were convinced we were going 50% of the way across the divide between us to communicate the thing. And the reality is we were maybe 30%, right? And so like you see us at each end and we're both like, well, I'm meeting you in the middle. And I think he finally like, in frustration yelled to them like I am meeting you in the middle and I'm like you are not I am meeting you in the middle and then we kind of both stopped and went oh (laughs) oh that's real like you really believe that I really believe that we're not meeting you know and so I realized you kind of have to go maybe 70% towards something and then maybe you're actually 50% in right that lost in your own shit thing is with you all the time. And it, and it overlaps with the others, right? The people are not objects and lost in your own shit. Those are very closely related, but they're still kind of different things. And then the truly scary thing is if you can nail at any given moment, all three of these things that, you know, there is no binary. So my view and someone's different view isn't necessarily wrong. People are not objects. So I'm going to remember to try and humanize who's in front of me. And I am lost in my own shit. So I'm going to try and remember to go a little further. When you can do all three of those, you can be really good. You can create goodness in the world. But when you miss on all three of those, that's where we get evil. That's where the rise of Nazi Germany comes from. That's where hate crimes come from, right? Because the people are in a space where like, hey, you know, Charles, I think purple is the best and you think orange is the best. So you're obviously wrong. You're just an object in my life. And I'm so caught up in my pain from my background that I'm going to punch you or I'm going to shoot you or I'm going to feel no compunction about doing something horrible to you because I believe all three of those things. And, and, and you know, a, a very good person can slip into some very bad stuff. I love that. You know, I thought that this was going to be a typical podcast interview with somebody engaged in tech and kind of like the Silicon Valley ethos. I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be exactly that because I know Laura, but it became a rocket feather podcast interview. Yep. Like it always does. Like it always does. Do you have a typical interview? (laughs) Yeah, it's this. They just get juicy and great and people bring their brilliance and we get to sit here and enjoy it and we get to talk about heart and empathy Mm -hmm. and changing the world and the nature of evil and what we can do whether it's whether it's uh changing how we spend our money or changing how we think about the person who just cut us off in traffic to make a better world yeah laura thank you so much for for spending this this time with us and 
<sighs> Thank being, you. Just Amazing. being so awesome. You're so generous with your time. This has been great. Mm. Do I get to give people homework? Yes, this is a good time to do that. Absolutely. I mean, we already made them do Arcadia and I think they got the idea about like, hey, I could change banks if I ever, you know, which I don't mean to minimize. It is a lot of work to change your bank. You got to find the one you want. You got to fill out paperwork. Like it can take you months, even though you're like, oh, this will take an hour. Um, But uh, yeah, I want you to look around the COVID response where you live and, you know, find a map, find some data, find the zip codes near you that are getting hit the hardest and find one community organization that works to address that population and just pick up the phone or send them an email or use the the contact us form on their website, which we keep talking about and just say, Hey, what do you need right now? Mm. And, you know, we, we have volunteers in the coalition doing that. And one of them called up a group and the group said, we need 200 thermometers and we can't find anywhere where we can buy them. And frankly, we don't really even have the funds. And one of our um, staffers was able to find those thermometers. And I believe they were delivered yesterday. So if everybody keeps doing that, those little drops in the bucket, right? It's very starfish stuff, right? Mm. Like, well, it may not save the whole ocean, but it helps this starfish. So we'll do that because the communities getting hit harder are getting hit so much harder and experiencing such higher rates of infection and death. And until we can save everyone, we got to save the people that uh, are nearest us. Yeah. This is going to be, there's going to be all kinds of awesome stuff in the show notes. We'll put the the link to the COVID map that breaks it down by, by zip code. And nice. uh, you can go from there. We'll put the links to Arcadia, to uh, the Enough Company, to the PPE Index, to take hopefully this energy that's coming off this podcast around creating a better world with more empathy and more engagement, take a little bit of that energy and do this homework assignment and reach out to the folks who need it the most. The big lesson from this is that although we need institutions to make a difference when some really motivated, thoughtful people like Laura Fitton Mm -hmm. can jump in and find where the gap is and fill it with some energy and fill it with some love and empathy changes happen. Don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel. Look for the helpers. It's very, you know, Mr. Rogers, right? Look Mm. for the helpers, but there is always something. There is always something that might be Mm. the title for the episode. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, Laura. And and like I said, giving so generously your time and energy, it's really inspirational. So much love to you both. So much love Mm. to your listeners that I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you. Thanks. It is always so great to talk with Laura. She is so smart and real that I, I, I always feel inspired, but somehow I feel like there's room for us to be part of her, her world, even though it seems so big and professional and I don't know, fancy's not the right word, but like she's really killing it. And, but she's a real person. She's so accessible. She's um, actually really nervous about this episode being released. Yeah. You know, I think we should just, I think, you know, there's two things going on, right? She's it's like a one real is person. she's a real person and yeah. we are real people as well. Right. And that's kind of the whole message of this episode is that there's nothing that, that Laura does or did or is going to do that the rest of us can't do. I mean, she's got a world-class education and she's got a, a crazy inquiring mind, 
but there's no reason that I couldn't have looked at what was going on with PPE right. and started a spreadsheet. Yeah, she's not superhuman. No. She just goes for it in a way that a lot of people, most people don't go for it. Yep. What did you take away from this epic journey that we went on with her? So this was, it was really fascinating to hear Laura talk about this mm -hmm. idea of these overlapping circles and that where that Venn diagram, where those overlapping circles all correspond of the negative version of this, right. of like being in your own shit, viewing people as objects right, and believing in the, believing that everything's a binary. When those all overlap, that's where evil resides. And she's like working that out in real time mm -hmm. with us on this podcast. So you all heard it here first. It's going to be on the TED stage at some point. Right. Oh, that would be a great TED talk. And yeah. plus, also, I had fun because I am a graphic nerd, as you well know. And so I made a little graphic of the the dark side and the light side, if you want to call it that. That's kind of binary. But anyway. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes and, and we'll create a PDF link too so people can download yeah. it and, and print it out. Put it on your fridge alongside uh, pictures of uh, yowling cats and, right? and pasta. Does, yeah. anybody, does anybody have one of those on their fridge? The cat being ladled, the little, the little kitten, kitten being ladled in the out spoon of, the... of spaghetti. Yeah. yeah. Are we going on too long? Ah, everybody loves kittens and spaghetti. Yeah, right. So like Kelly said earlier, there was really clear calls to action in this episode already. And I'll just add to them a little bit, you know, follow us on Instagram at Rocketfeather1 and join us in the Rocketfeather Community Lab on Facebook and let us know if and when you took up any of Laura's challenges. Did you sign up to buy renewable energy? Did you look up a nonprofit working in a COVID hotspot and ask them, what do you need? Did you go a little bit out of your comfort zone to acknowledge the full humanity of another? And if you did, we need to hear those stories. We need to see and hear those kinds of stories, especially on social media, but definitely in the Rocket Lab, because they inspire more people, right? It's like to do it once, to say something nice to the person at the gas station is awesome, but then telling us about it means that we get that positive social contagion, as Laura said, we get that virus mm -hmm. from you. You get to spread a positive virus, and we need a worldwide pandemic of that virus. Amen, brother. So let us know what you took on and how that went and how it felt. Yeah, I would love to hear your story. It is now safe to unstrap and leave the rocket because we can't stay in the safety of the capsule. That's not why we came here. It's time to be brave and engage with this new world that we seem to have landed on. Until next time, this is Charles Matthews. And Kelly Roberge wishing you the audacity to think you can make a difference and the fortitude to make it happen. Woo. We love you. We love you.